0: do this will be Mr. Dan Lepesky who will introduce him. Dan. Get out of there. I really think it's necessary for me to uh, enumerate Lloyd Miller's credentials as the Civil War authority. Mr. Miller might be termed America's number one (coughs) Civil War buff.
1: For that fact is this case of Grant's Scotch Whiskey right next to us over here. This is the first time that I have given a talk in a Civil War roundtable where there have been females. And I'm famous for swearing a little bit. And I'm going to have to watch myself tonight, but if one of them slips out, why, I, that's, you got to take it, that's all, I'm sorry. Um, speaking about dues, when we started this Fellowship fund. I felt that uh, maybe I could in dig up some money from some of these other roundtables that I had promised to speak with, and uh, I started doing this in Kansas City. They said, Lloyd, we can't afford to pay you an honorarium. We're glad to pay your expenses. Um, well, I said that's all right, Doc, uh, Doctor Maybe. Uh, I said, What are your dues? How long you've been in business? What's your balance in the treasury? And I kept picking these brains. And anyway, when we got ready to leave the day afterwards, I said, you know, about that honorarium, I wouldn't take it. I don't want it. I don't need it. So why don't you just slip me a check for $50 to put in that fund? Oh, we'd be delighted to. I did this several places. A couple of places, I hit them for 100, 150. But when I got out of Springfield, Three years ago, the treasurer's report, and they said they had seventeen dollars and a half in the treasury, <laughs> and their dues, I think, were two dollars a year. And I said, "Here you are in the capital of our fair state, and you're supposed to be men interested in American history, and you all have a tie on and a shirt. You must be able to make fifty dollars a week or something. Uh, how come you have such a low treasury?" I said i was going to ask for an honorarium but you can't even pay postage with the balance you've got but i said i'll tell you something and they had bread in baskets and i went to every table and dumped the bread and had the baskets now i said you take this and you take this and i want to see some green stuff when it comes back for this fellowship fund i got 89 dollars, and they couldn't understand this they couldn't
2: they couldn't no.
1: but uh, we've raised a lot of money And we're going to raise more. Um, You find schools in the United States where they don't teach American history, it kind of makes your blood boil. This um, talk tonight I'm going to treat on just one portion of the battlefield on the second day at Gettysburg. Now I don't know the capacity of a lot of the people, history to a lot of ladies is not too interesting. I'm going to make this one darn interesting tonight, I'm sure of that, aren't I?
2: Um,
1: But I just want to go over for a few seconds. Something that happened in this great, this was the biggest battle of the Civil War. There were more men engaged than any other battle, and it lasted longer than any other battle, three days. In the first day, the Union commander Meade had only had command of that army three days. Lee was uh, the general of the army in the South and well respected and loved. And he was the champion. He was uh, just like the guy that had the Green Bay Packers, as far as the South concerned, with his army. But they were moving up into one of these invasions. He only made two up into Pennsylvania to get money, supplies, get the army the devil out of Virginia was eating them out of house and home and relieved the pressure on Richmond. Lee went up the mountains west of Gettysburg and uh, his cavalry under Stuart had orders, but if you read them, they were not strict enough to time down. He'd been raiding before very successfully and uh, uh, he just went off on this raid. Uh, Mr. Lee didn't have Stuart's cavalry. However, he did have some i'll talk about later but anyway in moving over towards gettysburg with one of his army corps on the uh early on the morning of july 1 1863 up here where the town of gettysburg is it's above the map about where that light is coming from the west on the chambersburg pike some of his troops bumped into federal cavalry what in god's name is that on the floor there
2: Boy, it jumps! Uh. <laughs> you know, some of
1: these Confederate soldiers would have used that for food. <clears throat> anyway, Buford's uh, Buford's brigade of cavalry were scouting ahead of Meade's army that had been coming up, keeping itself between Washington and Baltimore, and wherever this Confederate army was, somewhere they didn't know exactly. And Meade, in his mind. Had no thought of any battle here at Gettysburg. He wanted to make a defense farther south where a creek runs east and west more or less called Pipe Creek and he was going to make his defense there if he had got into a good firefight. But this Confederate, I mean this Union Cavalry under Buford got into Gettysburg and were scouting around trying to find and feel where this Confederate army might be and they bumped into these troops marching into Gettysburg to pick up some shoes. And this one brigade of cavalry actually for two hours held off two divisions of Confederate infantry. They did a terrific job under Buford. Uh, The funny thing, uh, the generals that have monuments at Gettysburg, which is the best marked field of all, all the uh, corps commanders in the Union are mounted on a horse and the cavalry commander that was in this, Buford, is standing on the ground. But this is just about as stupid as uh, Grant is up in Lincoln Park with a statue, and Lincoln is in Grant's Park with a statue (laughs) in Chicago. Well, from early morning on, uh, this firefight took place around Hur's Ridge, west of Gettysburg, near the McPherson woods, and the 1st Army Corps hurried up, came up the Emmitsburg Pike, and cut across the ground and got up in here to relieve that cavalry under Reynolds, 1st Army Corps, very fine Pennsylvanian, West Pointer. And he was followed by the 11th Army Corps under Howard, Oliver Otis Howard. Uh, Howard got up about one o'clock in the afternoon and was faced more or less to the north, fighting off another group of Confederates coming down from Carlisle under Yule. Uh, These other troops were coming from the west into Gettysburg, and so the 1st Army Corps is more or less defending in this position, and the 11th Army Corps got up north of the town and is defending from Yule coming from the north. So we have Buford commanding first, then we have Reynolds in the 1st Army Corps, who's now commander on the field. Around 12 o'clock when Howard appeared ahead of his column, Howard became, because of his seniority, the commanding officer. Um, And word is sent back immediately to Meade, who's at Tannytown, south of here with his headquarters. The rest of the Union Army is down in here, over in here, and over in here, (coughs) and a fast concentration is ordered to get these troops up, and it keeps developing until it's a battle. (coughs) Reynolds was killed in the McPherson woods. Abner Doubleday, that's supposed to have invented baseball, took his place. We had Doubleday commanding after Reynolds was killed. I missed him, that's right. Then when Howard came up, Howard took command. Uh, in the afternoon, these troops were so beat up that the Howard's men in the 11th Army Corps were beaten pretty badly and came back and rendezvoused around Cemetery Hill when Lincoln made his Gettysburg Address. And incidentally, the only monument to his speech there at Gettysburg. Um, Howard had left one division around Cemetery Hill and he dug in and prepared a defense there, which was very smart. Anyway, the Union troops fell back through the town. Many were captured, many killed. They rendezvoused around Cemetery Hill and the troops over in here kept falling back until they were all more or less concentrated up in this area. (coughs) Lee saw this route of the Union Army down into here and sent word to his General Yule in the 2nd Army Corps to take those people. Yule procrastinated. He didn't take those people. He missed a golden opportunity. He just sat there with his wooden leg He should have had uh, people take this spot. If they could have taken this spot with their artillery, they'd have just knocked the devil out of this Union concentration. Yule didn't move because he said he lacked Johnson's division. Johnson had gone all the way from Carlisle, way over west and down, and clogged the roads with these other troops of Lees trying to get up. Yule didn't attack Because Johnson wasn't there. Johnson got in about 8 o'clock at night, exact time. In the meantime, some Union troops under the 12th Army Corps came in the picture, commanded by Slocum, he being the senior, he now is the general of the Army. And Meade, down in Tannytown, told Hooker to go up, look the situation, Hooker, no I'm sorry, Hancock, don't want Hooker. hate him get hancock up there and take command and see what dispositions made and if it's a defensible spot so hancock goes up finds the situation as it is and this is a very fine defensible spot because from cemetery hill there's a ridge coming down topped off by little round top and big round top he then left and went back to Tannytown and around 1 in the morning on July 2 Meade is up here and makes his headquarters in this little Leicester home it's still there those of you who have been to Gettysburg all seen it it's just over the hill from this cemetery ridge this of course is known as Seminary Ridge and it's named after a Lutheran, Lutheran seminary west of the town this, of course, gets his name from all... The, the, this was the graveyard for Gettysburg. So Meade now looks the situation over and decides that he's going to defend this, and he had already, uh, they had already sent troops over on Culp's Hill from the remnants of the First Army Corps defending this so that the Confederates would have to fight like the devil to get it. So we have Union troops here and here, And he said then to have Hancock bring his 2nd Army Corps and extend it down. And as the other troops came up, he would make proper disposition. Lee told Ewell to take this position and to attack those people. But Mr. Lee did not go over and argue with Ewell or see what he was doing of all the battles with his greatness. And, and no one can deny that Lee was a terrific statistician, a tactician, leader, fighter, but this was Lee's worst battle by far. And his first step was he didn't follow Baldy Yule and check it up. And for those of you who are students and know this subject, Lee gave broad orders to his corps commanders, and they seemed to have the ability to do the job without any more detail. But when when um, Stonewall Jackson was killed at Chancellorsville, Lee lost a terrific man, and Baldy Yule took part of his troops, and a na- man named Ambrose Powerhill formed the 3rd Army Corps and took the other part of Jackson's troops. And I guess Mr. Lee thought that maybe Baldy Yule could think like, Stonewall Jackson and do the job here, but he didn't follow it up. All right. All night long, troops are marching like mad from the west to reinforce for Lee, from the south, the southeast, and uh, late in the afternoon when the uh, 12th Army Corps came up under Slocum, they ordered... uh, Gary's division to more or less protect this left flank. Gary's division, the 12th Army Corps, is there. And he is to stay there until he's relieved (coughs) by Mr. Sickles, who commands the 3rd Army Corps. Well, anyway, when the 2nd Army Corps came up through the night, their place more or less... I'm not going to put these troops up here because we're talking about the Union left. Now there's part of the Union Army, some of the 1st Army Corps here and over there, the 11th Army Corps is up here, and the 12th Army Corps is about, where am I? Here. But this one division is sent over in this position during the night. Real early in the morning, this division commander don't wait for Mr. Sickles. He just decides he's needed back over in here, and he moves back where the rest of this concentration of troops are, Baltimore Pike, Rock Creek. Now the 3rd Army Corps is moving up under Sickles. And I, uh, I'm i going to talk about this a little bit, but not as broadly as I did the, uh, last week. Uh, Do any of your ladies know about General Sickles a little bit? He's quite a character. He married a 16-year-old girl, and uh, around Washington, uh, she philandered with the son of the guy that wrote the Star Spangled Banner, and everybody in Washington knew it, but Sickles. But when he found out about this uh, meeting place during the day, uh, he finally stopped. Mr. Key on the street, and shot him, and shot him, and shot him, and shot him until he just killed him dead. And a friend took Sickles on off, and the man who later became Secretary of the State defended him, and he got out of this thing because uh, his home was dishonored, and this was the way they did things in those days. But Sickles, of course, was quite a ladies' man, and he, uh, he knew a lot of people. And of course, uh, one of the strange things is that after this happened, he uh, tried to reintroduce his wife around Washington society, and they thought they wouldn't stand for it. And he thought, the damn fools, what kind of people are these? She's my wife, and uh, this is the kind of a peculiar man Sickles was. But um, after the war was over, he went to Spain, and he was the private lover of the Queen of Spain for several years. He had a leg off, and he he kept up this life until he was about ninety. Uh, I realize he's a strong man. I take my hat off. <laughs> but enough of that. <coughs> Early in the morning, Mr. Sickles brings his Third Army Corps into the scene, and uh, he only has two divisions. One division is left back at Harper's Ferry. So when Sickles comes up. He extends this line down where he's supposed to. (coughs) And he sits and looks this situation over, and it's getting up in the daytime. Mr. Lee had informed General Longstreet, who commanded the First Army Corps, the Confederates, that he was going to have Ewell attack around this area. And then he changed his mind and he said he was going to have Mr. Longstreet attack on the Union left. And a lot of people have condemned Longstreet because he didn't attack, start this attack early in the morning. If you read the records, and they're very conclusive, Longstreet never got definite orders to make this a flanking attack until 11 o'clock in the morning. All this time, this Union concentration is still coming on. The Fifth Army Corps is now up, and they're over in here, under Sykes. So Sickles remembering what happened at Chancellorsville and that great flanking movement of Stonewall Jackson and realizing that the ground here was fairly high, but then it got into a morass, and low ground here, before it hit Little Round Top. He realized this was a horrible place to fight his artillery. Each one of these uh, Army Corps had their own artillery. Then there was a huge artillery reserve besides that. The ground out here along the Emmitsburg Pike again came up high a little bit. And this was a terrific defensive spot and also a terrific spot to place artillery. And he had looked this over carefully and then asked Mr. Meade if he could move his troops. He got nowhere. Meade's idea was to defend this line. This got to be known as the famous fish hook, of course. This was the shank and the hook and the barb on the end that they talk about. Sickles, still smarting over this thing, decided he's gonna look into it and make darn sure what's going on. And he had in one of his divisions, a brigade, it had the first and second U.S. sharpshooters, an organization that a lot of even students of the Civil War don't know. These guys wore green uniforms, they had repeating rifles, and many of them had telescopic sights, and they were terrific marksmen. So Colonel um, Berdan took five companies of the first U.S. sharpshooters and the 3rd Main Regiment under Sickles orders and maneuvered out like so and he crossed Cemetery Ridge and as they were doing this it's now way past 11 o'clock and Longstreet is moving his whole 1st Army Corps with one division of the 3rd Army Corps to take the place of Pickett, whom Longstreet didn't have. Pickett is way back at Chambersburg guarding all the Army trains and supplies. And to take Pickett's place, Lee assigned Anderson's division of the 3rd Army Corps. And they started to march down back in here where they couldn't be seen by lookouts on Little Round Top and they knew they were there but they got down to where they thought they were being seen and they retraced their steps back again and countermarched and came down again and as they came down the second time these five little companies of sharpshooters and this main regiment put it into them and saw them and started a fire Now I haven't got the Confederates in here yet because there's too much moving I'll move in a minute but these troops spread out real wide and caused this Confederate column to face to the left and deploy and send out skirmishers and it, they delayed them 30 minutes and this 30 minutes is very important in this battle nevertheless these men were abj- overcome they, uh, they, they had casualties and they had to fall back but they had uncovered this terrific movement of troops and they came back now Mr. Sickles Knows there's going to be a flanking movement and he knows he's the left of the Union line and he also knows by now that by some peculiar trick of fate the commanding officer of the Union forces has allowed Buford the cavalry commander up there to leave guarding in this spot and the Union Cavalry leave and go southeast so now they have nothing guarding their flank and a large mass of troops that they know about are coming down in this position. So Sickles finally has the General Hunt in charge of all the artillery of the Union Army under May's orders go with him. He wanted to move his troops out here, and he did move them, and Hunt, he wanted to get Hunt's permission that this was all right, and Hunt said this is a better position, but you don't have enough troops to cover the the line, and I can't give you orders to do it, it'll have to come from General Meade. So the troops all the way up here, all of a sudden, in the early afternoon, see this 3rd Army Corps with all of their flags, battle flags, march out, and leave that left flank open and they can't understand what the orders are they haven't been ordered to do anything but out goes sickles High ground, this way, there's a defensible spot for infantry to defend. And these two brigades are backed up with this one in reserve. And these are under a very fine general who went far in the war. Um, we'll get back to him in a minute. Down by the famous peach orchard. General Graham has a brigade, 1st Brigade, 1st Division. The Frenchman, Regis de Trobriand, is down by the wheat field, and extending on down towards the Devil's Den is um, Ward with his brigade. And he also has this company of sharpshooters, and he has another company of sharpshooters, the second U.S. sharpshooters under Colonel Stratton. Now, the Union flank is open here, but this is a tough spot because it goes uphill a little bit to this, it goes uphill a little bit to that. There are a lot of woods in here, Confederates don't know what's back of it around the Trossel House, and we got some Confederates on there now. These troops in Longstreet have been marching a long distance. And they had a lot of marching here, and it's 98 on the second day of July that year. The winds out of the north is 98 degrees. Hood, who commands a division under Longstreet, his strongest brigade all Alabama troops under general law and they're still back up here they marched all part of the night all this day and then they had a double quick (laughs) down to get in the front of this whole column how these men covered this distance and that heat and carrying their stuff I will never know but I do know this that when they got on here the final lineup or something like this. Law's brigade is backed up with Benning's brigade of Georgia troops in reserve. Then we have the 4th, 3rd, 1st Texas, and the 3rd Arkansas and they're backed up by a brigade under General Anderson Reserve. These are Hood's troops under Longstreet. Then (coughs) Lafayette McLaws has a division. The other division that's there under Longstreet. And Kershaw's brigade is put about here with Barksdale in reserve. Sam's Brigade with Wofford in reserve. All of that artillery is placed on the left for this, for these two divisions. Anderson's troops come in back of Seminary Ridge can't be seen. There are artilleries there. And all of the reserve artillery of this 1st Army Corps, many guns are in here. When these poor devils got all the way down, they detailed men out of the ranks to take their canteens and get some water. They had none. 98 degrees, dusty. They'd been in the tail end, double-pricking through, and the farthest down on this planking movement. But some of this cavalry was still out there and captured these men, and the Confederates never got their canteen. When four o'clock, I mean, when this kickoff came at four o'clock, the orders had been that when Longstreet was ready to attack He would attack up the Emmitsburg Pike. And when those guns were heard, the 2nd Army Corps under old Baldy Yule with his wooden leg, who did nothing the day before, was to attack up at the north. (laughs) This thing didn't get off until about 4 o'clock. Now, it's hard to I haven't got four arms you can't move all these troops at one time it was seen at three o'clock or a little after Meade went down with Sickles to see this and he didn't like it and Sickles said shall I move my troops back sir and just then the first guns went off over here to start this attack and Meade said those people won't let you I'll have to reinforce you so immediately he went back and ordered the 5th Army Corps under Sykes to come in all right uh, I want to get to this point the first part of Sykes troops under Barnes came across Down to the wheat field the rest of them came across this wheat field road when Meade told him you these people won't let you and this cannonading started first warren the chief engineering officer went up on little round top where they had some men with signal flags wigwag and he immediately heard that had seen bodies of troops moving this firing of artillery was over here but this time the 5th army corps started to come in but some of their artillery three guns were placed there and three in front of the devil's den and warren sent a orderly down to tell the commander of this one battery to fire in this direction which he did and those shots went whistling over through the woods the gleam the sunlight on the barrels and accoutrements showed definitely there were many people down there. And this is where Warren was aware of the fact that they were being outflanked and he immediately sent word to Meade for a whole division. Well, the Fifth Army Corps was sent over there. In any event, the um, Fifth Army Corps, as it came in, Had three and had uh, one brigade of four regiments under Colonel Strong Vincent from Pennsylvania and uh, Sickles had asked for more troops up in front word had gone to Sickles to send some troops here and he said he couldn't afford to send them and when these 5th Army Corps people came down, an orderly came over to tell Barnes to get some troops on La Ranta. And Strong Vincent said, what are your orders? And the courier said, where is your commanding general? Well, he wasn't there. Barnes, we, no one knows where Barnes was. He's later I'll practically cashiered out of the Army. But uh, Strong Vincent said, give me your orders. And he said to put some troops here. He said, I will take the responsibility He told Colonel Rice to bring on the brigade. He went with his flag bearer, couldn't climb the north slope of Little Round Top, came around to the east, down to the south, and found a shelf of ground in here that was defensible. And pretty soon, his brigade came down the 44th New York, the 16th Michigan, the 83rd Pennsylvania, and Chamberlain's famous main brigade. When they got in position and Strong Vincent realized this was a place to defend, the uh, commander of the 44th New York, Rice, said, Colonel Vincent, in all of our previous battles, the 44th New York and the 83rd Pennsylvania fought shoulder-to-shoulder We wish it could be that way today. And Strong Vincent said, very well, we'll move the 16th Michigan to the right. The 16th Michigan was placed about here, then the 44th New York, 83rd Pennsylvania, and Chamberlain's wonderful Main regiment, <coughs> which was placed about in this position. Chamberlain sent out Company B as skirmishers to see what was out in here and see if there was any movement of Confederates. Now, While this is taking place, this attack has started. And as these troops, they, they had remonstrated with Hood that they could flank the Roundtops because they had found out, sent some scouts out and found nobody on it. They could see the whole reserve of artillery and supply wagons back here. And they begged to let them go around to the east of Big Round Top, And Hood believed in it. Wanted to do it, went to Longstreet. Longstreet sent word to Lee. Lee's orders were to attack up the Emmitsburg Pike. He didn't know that this was here. He knew that was there now. And he figured they could roll these troops up and take them in flank. And Lee, of course, didn't know just how much the Union force had concentrated. So as hard as these men tried to change these tactics, they had to do what Mr. Lee said. But Mr. Lee never came down and looked. Again, the second day, he doesn't look. So this brigade starts off (coughs) followed by the reserve. In the meantime, Stratton sharpshooters have been sent out in front clear across here. They did terrific damage with those telescopic sights at long range. But anyway, as the troops kept coming up in this brigade, They were too far to the right. And by this time, the next bunch are coming in, and he sees it's impossible to bear off to the left. So he told these two regiments to stop. And as the other troops moved up, to come in on their left. But just at this time, these sharpshooters were overpowered and they fell back. Up over a little round top, but the commanding general here figured they'd be taken in flank, so he turned these two regiments to face them. This group went up in here. Now, as these men came over, two Texas regiments move up, and they wind up in the middle of this other brigade where they didn't belong. Anyway, these sharpshooters fell back. Some of them disappeared for a while and some got back where they belong. When these men got to the top of that mountain, they were so pooped that they just had to stop and take their equipment off and rest. They had no water, they'd been marching all night and all day, and they were just done in. And this is a high rugged thing to climb if you've ever been there. It's five times worse than Little Round Top. At this time, artillery shatters Mr. Hood's arm and he's out of the battle, and Law, who commanded this Alabama Brigade, takes command of the division. All right, these men are up here, and we lose them for a minute. So, as the attack comes up, the Devil's Den, which is a horrible place, wonderful spot for sharpshooters, this one part of this battery is captured. This moves back. This is out of the picture. Then down this valley go and file these troops. Meantime, this comes up here and so on. These four regiments, two of them sent out Skirmishers. The skirmishers met, there were several killed, and these Confederate troops attacked as hard as they could and kept it up until they saw they couldn't make the grade, and they decided to fall back and attack up to the left. So they moved back here, and finally this regiment stayed by there, stood its ground, lost a lot of men, but these men around went, went around to this side a little round top, to attack up and flank. They did. And while they're doing that, more of the 5th Army Corps come in, and Schweitzer's troops are put up here, back up to Trobrian. Tilton's troops, also in here. Air's regular army. There were there were two brigades in the second division of the fifth army corps. They were all regular army, and that's all the regular army they had in the east. These were all the rest of them were all volunteers. At this time. Now, the last thing that Warren did when this attack is going on, and he doesn't know Strong Benson's down here at all. It's a, Big drop off he can't hear him there's a north wind he doesn't know there at all but he sees this attack coming up the valley from devil's den and he sees the terrific firefight is raging over here and uh, weeds second the uh, weeds third brigade of the second division is moving up this road but supposedly to help with sickles and he gets by but as these troops go on by, Patrick O'Rourke in this 3rd Brigade with 140th New York is seen by Warren and Warren rode down the hill and said, Patty, he had commanded him before. He said, Patty, get up on that hill. We need support. as fast. Get there as fast as you can. And these men ran up, hadn't loaded their guns, hadn't fixed bayonets. They actually, when this part of this 16th Michigan broke and retreated with these confederates coming up here O'Rourke's men just bodily ran into them and it took them so by surprise that they didn't even realize they weren't being shot at it shook them up they lost their cool and they started to fall back but Patty O'Rourke was killed and right at this same time Hazlitt's Battery D of the 5th Army Corps followed them and they were ordered at the top and this is a fantastic thing. They took those guns and the horses and practically carried them up over those boulders and put that battery of six guns on Little Roundtown. When that 12th Michigan broke on the right, Strong Vincent went around to see what he could do to hold the line, and he was mortally wounded. Patty O'Rourke's dad. This battery is up there now, but in the meantime, the commanding general Sykes finds out about Weed's three regiments in this brigade and orders them back to Round Top. And they hurried on back and completed that semicircle with these other three regiments. Weed, who commanded this regiment, this uh, brigade, was knocked off by a sharpshooter over here, and Hazlitt, the commander of this battery, leaned over him to see if what he, he thought he'd given them an order and they were buddies, and when he leaned over, a sharpshooter got him. So Hazlitt's dead on top of Weed, who's dead, Strong Vincent dies the next day over here, I think, in a farm in Weakert's. But these troops held. And when this thing failed, and these men finally fell back with the Confederacy, these two regiments came over. They got their breath back, and they've come down over in here, and they get in this valley, and they try to stretch their lines around and outflank Chamberlain's main outfit. What's the number of that main? 20, 20, 20. Well, I'm glad you know, that's fine. That's... I was waiting for somebody to tell me, Forrest, so you wouldn't rise to the bait Anyway, Chamberlain's footies regiment at right angles to protect that flank and they just about exhausted all our ammunition. They were heavily loaded with it. They shot it all up. And just at this crucial time, Chamberlain ordered his men to fix bayonets and they didn't have to be told what they were supposed to do. They're out of ammunition, half their men are down, dead or wounded and they just charged these confederate outfits that were here, ran bodily into them. And fortunately at the same time, this company b that he had sent out as skirmishers came back with these sharpshooters that had been up here and came down the valley and took these two regiments in flank and they turned them around and straightened out this line like so one officer confederate here offered his sword and surrender to a yankee officer and as the yankee officer took hand out to take it, the goddamn Confederate shotty. Uh This was chivalry. Pardon my, I swore once, I'm sorry. Uh, now, so much went up over here. Had Johnson, with this 3rd Army Corps, had had a meeting with the commander here, Longstreet, as to what they were going to do to correlate their movements, this would have been a wonderful. But they had had no conference at all. This man was told, Anderson was told to work with Longstreet. He came in with Longstreet. They didn't talk anything over. Longstreet's mad because he didn't want to do it this way. Lee won't come down and talk to them. Nevertheless, this attack kept coming over, knocking off the peach orchard into the wheat field, Sickles' troops are just decimated. And Hancock sent, Hancock was temporarily put in command of this area when Sickles lost his leg. A piece of artillery knocked his right leg off above the knee and it was hanging in shred, um, back for the trussle for him. But the irish brigade there were three divisions the second army two divisions they of the second army corps came down here to bolster this line and of course the fifth army corps was in here in depth but the net result was that this apex could not be held against this terrific firefight the confederates had of massed artillery and they just kept weakening their pushing them back the reserve artillery finally lined up and made a charge right up to this position and put in a terrific bunch of shot and shell. And uh, well, it just played hob in this concentrated area, that's all. Now, with Anderson's troops, if Anderson had cooperated with Longstreet, if Lee had been there to do something about it, if A.P. Hill, who commanded the corps that had this division of Anderson's, had been there, they might have done something. But two of these divisions, Mahone and Posey, did nothing. Wright and two other divisions got on over, and later when this line was pushed back, Wright actually got up to Seminary Hill but couldn't hold a position. And it was about in here that that first Minnesota was decimated. Had the greatest losses of any regiment in the Civil War. Well, the net result was, as it's getting late, now 5:30, towards 6 o'clock, some of these troops came in front of the others. The ones that are up in front came back, and you have a thing going on like this along the Plum Run the line. They're just mass. Some of them mixed up with other troops. Their artillery is half of it is wiped out, and if it hadn't been for Hunt with the reserve artillery up here to bolster this line along this plum run run creek, they'd never been able to stop them. But they did stop them. And Longstreet said, if it hadn't been for those twenty or thirty minutes they lost when Berdan sharpshooters were over there, that had have jumped off sooner and the defense on Little Round Top wouldn't have been there. And they'd turned this flank. <laughs> and then again. Had Lee done anything about it? Had the Corps commander done anything about it? Had they had any kind of a conference? Nothing like this at all. It wasn't until 4 o'clock that the Confederates jumped off. They suffered terrific losses. And actually, two-thirds of the losses at Gettysburg in those three days occurred after 4 o'clock on the second day down here on this left flank. You read many books, and there many of them that tell you that Warren ordered troops around Little Round Top. He wanted a division sent there. He never saw Strong Vincent go back there. He never heard Strong Vincent's firing. He never knew they were there. He had a slight wound after he ordered up Patty O'Rourke, who was killed, and moved back to his headquarters and then to finish this thing off in the evening as these troops got in this position these fellows are back here on the west side of round top the balance of the fifth army corps is in the valley and up on the heights and after six o'clock at night the head of the sixth army corps the strongest army corps in the union under sedgwick is up here the barn door is locked the whole union army is now concentrated and lee doesn't have his cavalry and he doesn't have Pickett's division that's still back leaving chambers for it. there's much that can be said about oh during this fight there were troops also sent from the 12th army corps over here to help for a while but had that man baldy yule attacked when this concentration was made here he'd have broken through the attack was very weak and it didn't come until nightfall and by that time, Meade had skillfully moved men back and reinforced this section up here so that there was no chance of a breakthrough. Now again, Mr. Lee complained bitterly because he didn't have Stuart's cavalry in his eyes. Second day at night, Stuart was in the vicinity and on the third day, of course, fought a cavalry battle out east of town. But a lot of people lose sight of the fact that Mr. Lee had four brigades of cavalry back at Chambersburg, and that cavalry was sufficient to defend those wagon trains and supplies and let Pickett's men be up here earlier. Had Pickett been here with Longstreet, where they had team cooperation, there'd been a breakthrough, there's no question in my mind, but this thing was so half-hearted with Anderson, with two of these brigades not even taking part in the fight, when they should have, those generals might just as well been playing mummy pig back someplace else Get a Holiday Inn. Now this, uh, I think the interesting part of this uh, is to discuss it. I've told you part of it. I didn't bring in a lot of the bloody gore that too many ladies shared. It, it, this was an awful abattoir in here. There were over 500 Confederates alone dead in this wheat field. They just came on and on and on and on. Hood's men were fighters, Longstreet men were fighters. And they were mad because they couldn't do what they wanted to do. They wanted to flank the Union Army. And this is the only battle he fought where he made a frontal attack, which was on the third day in desperation with Pickett and some of those Alabama and Georgia troops. He lost his tools, and he lost his battle. And he lost a lot of men that he couldn't replace. But on the strength of this for the moment, I think it'd be interesting for me to stop and. Let's talk about
2: it.
1: Uh, find fault with me if you think I made a mistake, uh, ask a question, discuss something.
0: Yes, a question. So to the 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 who? And the
1: uh, the second army corps it was a colonel cross who got killed that morning he had seen one of the ambulances go by and he said we won't need any of your dead wagons today but that night he was in one um let me find out i'll, I'll
2: answer your question I'm very gladly the also was killed um
1: <clears throat> now this i let me digress for a second Sickles had formed the Excelsior Brigade back in New York. This is where he got his start as a military man. And they were up there on this Emmitsburg Pike, the Excelsior Brigade. but Sickles uh, now commanded that corps. But under Hancock with the second, I moved them back in such a position, I'll find it. The devil isn't here. The Irish brigade had the 28th Massachusetts under Colonel Burns, 63rd New York under Bentley, 69th New York under Maroney, 88th New York under Burke, 116th Pennsylvania Four Companies under Mulholland, and was commanded by Colonel Pat Kelly. Those are all pretty much Irish names, aren't they? Well, yes
2: and no. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: that, that was the Irish Brigade. Well, the
0: Massachusetts
1: regiment. Of uh, wasn't Irish person. They uh, shot away. <clears throat> <clears throat> was the brigade. First. Well, um, this, this this brigade had uh, uh, 27 killed, 109 wounded, and 62 missing. I had a total losses of 198. There's a Catholic priest that has a statue here in Gettysburg from that outfit. You've seen it. that would have been down there. Well, Mr. Miller, you speculated on uh, why Lee was up there uh, looking for food and stew and so forth. Do you really think that's what he was up there for? Oh, he wanted, to, he wanted to get to Harrisburg. He wanted to extract money from these towns, which he did under Yule. And uh, Stewart took a terrific toll of people with money, put ransom on these towns and stuff. Lee himself wasn't feeling out for those shoes. It was this man A.P. Hill with the Third Army Corps under Heth who needed shoes. That we heard they were in Gettysburg, and he came in and hit this cavalry, and this started this firefight. And they reinforced, they reinforced, they reinforced, and first thing you know, you got a major battle. You have know, heard this
0: going the shooting thing now.
2: How did they know they
1: weren't the right sizes when they got there? The <laughs> they had a shoe factory there or something? Yeah. There was a shoe factory. Yeah, but did you ever see some of the pictures of the shoes those the guys shoes wore in those shoes, days? They were right and left, uh, the same. And, oh, right. Right. and most of them had no socks. The ones that did pull them up over their pant legs, so they didn't have leggings in those days. But some of the shoes that you see on the dead in pictures in the photographic history of the Civil War it just amazed you how these guys could fight with that equipment. I, I don't know how they did it. I I just know this, that with all the development and the know-how uh, starting in World War One, and the fact that the international rules of land warfare called for a 30 caliber copper jacketed bullet that could go through a man and leave a small hole when it came out and not give him lead poison. And then with all of the developments in medicine with sulfur and penicillin that saved so many lives, plus the fact that doctors have learned how to treat belly wounds. And whenever a man had a belly wound in the Civil War, they pulled him under a tree and gave him a chew of tobacco or a drink of whiskey because he was out. They knew it. He was peritonitis and set in and he was going to die. This was just a foregone conclusion. These guys had a bone shatter. They immediately sought it off. And many of those limbs that were sawed off, they didn't give them anything but a drink of whiskey or a hard right in the chin or a nail to chew on. I, it's just fantastic. I know this, that if the average soldier today had a fight under those conditions with a 55 caliber lead dum-dum bullet that went in that big and came out as big as your fist but then dropped dead of fright. Uh, Mr. Moore, you created a very
0: interesting salient there. I think perhaps it might be the benefit of all of us. This- the what? The salient. The salient that you created on your map. I'm well, lost. Well, you, you created a salient right above the loop field on the second day, beginning the second day. Of the it wasn't on purpose, but it was there. And unfortunately, the Confederate Army was uh, forced to
1: attack this salient. It was one of the very... Oh, salient. I didn't get the word you were saying. I'm sorry. I think perhaps... Uh, I, I You I said salient, salient. I'd have gotten it. Salient, okay. Well, I'm a Kentuckian and I thought well, it salient. Right. Excuse me for that. Well, all right. okay. I think this would be an interesting
0: explanation, though, for all of us the uh, the uh, purpose of that salient uh, and how important it was.
1: Well, the thing is that many military people have criticized Sickles as a non West Pointer, an entrepreneur, uh, a fighter. His men loved him. He, he fought, he had guts. And he, he covered himself with glory in previous battles, but they criticize him for violating the orders of the Commander-in-Chief. But Longstreet said after the war, two sickles. If you hadn't put that salient out of there, we'd have crushed you. Now what better proof of this can you have than two opponents talking this way? And many other people contend that all those sickles decimated the 2nd Army Corps. When this battle was over, the 2nd Army Corps was disbanded. It was moved with other troops. It was so shot up. And Sickles was out of the picture for the rest of the war. He had ministered jobs in South America and stuff like that. Um, I think that his disobedience put such a thorn in the side, and the fact that the troops on this part of the salient could not be seen with spyglasses up here, Lee thought this was the left of the Union line and these guys could tack up that Emersburg Pike and roll it up. He didn't know this was here because there were trees here, full of trees. So, this came as a shock, and when these troops saw this firefight, they wanted to go around. And they couldn't. They wouldn't let them.
0: First, uh, one, one other question. Your, uh, your point on the end of uh, Didn't we uh, conceive the attack uh, up the Edinburgh fight Pike uh, late at night on the 1st? He, he certainly wasn't aware of the fact At that time, that's right.
1: But the, 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 I didn't make added, that clear.
0: He orders.
1: No, he, he wanted the attack. <clears throat> he said he'd first make it over here. This was the first thought. But then changing his mind, he said at 11 o'clock to attack here, definitely. This was one of the two alternatives. But then when these couriers went back from Longstreet asking to go around, Lee's intelligence up here saw these troops in midair and he thought this was the end of the Union line and he stuck to his guns on that. But if you'd come down and look, it might have been different. And that's why I think, and many others do, that the fact that Lee didn't do what his Stonewall Jackson did. Stonewall Jackson went out and reconnoitered by himself. That's how he lost his life at Chancellorsville. Got ahead of his troops, the Woods, and his own troops, North Carolinians, shot him. But uh, Lee just left it up to his top generals, and this man A.P. Hill, I'm satisfied from all I can dig out of it, was sick. And there's definite proof that Lee was sick this day. They weren't around at all. And this old Baldy Yule, well, I'll tell you the kind of a guy he was, if you feel those of you who are not historians, he had a childhood sweetheart. She married a Mr. Brown. Late in life, Mr. Brown died, and Yule married her. And when he introduced her to society, he said, gentlemen, I want, to, want you to meet my wife, Mrs. Brown. <laughs> <laughs> And they say he had a high, squeaky, bird-like voice. And in one battle, he got hit in the leg, in the wooden leg with a mini ball, and went thunk into the wood. And he stopped the whole movement to give a dissertation on why it was important to have a wooden leg in a battle. I want you
2: to drink a
1: water.
0: What do you think of Longstreet's uh, original flanking attack plan? Do you think that had merits?
1: Yes. Yes. I, I really think so. The 6th Army Corps was not up. You all come back.
2: Careful. Huh? Where are you going? <laughs> That's uh, our wives you're talking about, Lloyd. What?
0: <laughs> That's our wives you're talking
1: about. <laughs> well, they got good husbands. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that if troops had gotten in here before that 6th Army Corps came up, with all this massed artillery in here and all their wagons and supplies back at this cemetery ridge, they could have gotten in there and just raised hob. It would confuse this army. You read all through the Civil War, the thing they're always afraid of is being outflanked. This seemed to go on, the Indian Wars, Revolutionary War, being outflanked. It don't bother people today. They can move troops entirely different. To maneuver troops in those days was quite a chore. How they did it, I don't know, and uh, it was just a messy job to get a whole regiment front up there to align. It t- sometimes took two hours to get mm-hmm. ready for an attack.
0: Would you point out the Eisenhower
1: farm? For, uh, yeah. Where this Pitcher Creek runs in here, and a little schoolhouse down here, this section is where Mr. Eisenhower's farm is. And that's where that firefight took place with those sharpshooters.
0: Mr. Miller, <clears throat> how, how important would you say was the loss of Hood? How important would you say was the loss of Hood? Uh, not his not his, uh, not his brigade but Hood himself.
1: Well I think it was a terrible loss for the Confederates. Um in, in the overall picture. It, well in the overall picture, Hood Hood was a fighter. That's true. Hood Hood was a terrific brigade and divisional commander. He feared nothing. He fought under the old Jominian theory of warfare, which is inhuman. But the idea was that each man would be shoulder to shoulder and attack. Didn't matter if there's a whole bunch of smooth Napoleons looking them right down the throat with canister and grape. They attacked shoulder to shoulder because they could feel, feel their fellow man and had confidence. If he got knocked off, the guy in the rear rank right moved up and they keep on going. And the idea being if they keep on coming and getting shot full of holes and you're still shooting and they're still coming, Pretty soon you drop your damn gun and run. This, this was the way. To, same way with a fighter. If you hit him with everything you got and he's still standing there, you wonder what's holding him up. You begin to worry. But Hood was this kind of a fighter. He lost men awful bad in Antietam. And of course, he got the command of the army in 64 down at Franklin and lost his whole shirt because he didn't have the ability to command an army. He lacked that ability. And he had a leg off and an arm withered, and he was so in pain with no aspirin that the guy was drunk all the time. And he was a good Kentuckian. He knew how to drink whiskey. You <laughs> know, I, th- I think this was a terrible loss to lose, to lose hood. Uh, here
0: could you conceivably carried... Uh... Uh, kid, never left.
1: No about it. well I think he had done a better job with this outfit because when laws left this Alabama Brigade which was the strongest Brigade if Hood had still been here and laws kept that Brigade they might have broken through I think good, I do too because
0: I think the troops lost, heart,
1: they lost oh there's no question about it the word went through the army and of course a little bit of this went on when Sickles was reported they saw him laying there in a stretcher I as they say and when he saw the troops were worried about he was dying, he lit a cigar and waved to the boys and carried off in a blaze of glory with his legs just hanging in shreds.
3: We'll have one more question uh, to ask well, off I was you are mentioning the mass artillery fire, what little I have read on the subject. Uh, I read specifically the complaint that your artillery got to carry under too much of local control by that i mean uh regiments uh reach down to battalions trying to control their own artillery for the benefit of their own units that's right rather than the mass firepower that uh, they use in a modern concept and yet you spoke of a of a large artillery reserve under i assume army control uh, this was under general this was under
1: general hunt who commanded the artillery reserve and was ahead of all artillery in a sense. Uh, he got enough artillery in there when this stuff all broke up to make this defense along this Plum Run line, and he had enough u- uh, infantry back of it to support it. But prior to that, it was all piecemeal through here, and when this big charge came with this reserve artillery over here, they just made a shambles out of this whole section. Nothing could stand under it. The other point which
3: I was curious about, you mentioned that <clears throat> the Confederates tried to go around the south end there of the Roundtop. Big Roundtop, round or Little Roundtop? Little Roundtop. Well, yeah, they there. got about part. Four. They got through there. You said they got about four units, and then a couple of them pulled back and went north.
1: <laughs> well, uh, they they got shot up so bad they thought if they got around on this side they could take these troops and flank. They could see they left of their line, the right of the Union line here, under Colonel Welsh. And they did almost break through because Welsh's three right companies broke, and with Welsh went on back. And was found back here at night uh he was under his reputation was shot all to hell after this battle but he was later killed in 64 uh at petersburg
3: why if they were breaking contact with the enemy uh, even though they were getting shot up if they your the intelligence uh, information to know that they could go uh continue on to the east I understand to break out, break contact with the Union forces and, and uh, flank them to the east rather than going to the north or were they afraid of it because they had uh, no information or what? Well, they had no, no these
1: troops had no information but when they got around here the firefight had been on the south side a little round top and this man Chamberlain's troops were spread real thin and thrown back at a 45 degree angle and they didn't know how far this, they kept wanting to outflank it but when this charge finally came they had to face it. And they had expended a lot of their ammunition also, and they, had, they were the ones that had marched all day and up this mountain, and they were just beat physically. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Lloyd,
1: well, what, what were the casualties the
2: second
1: day? Oh, don't ask me that. <laughs> don't ask me that. Uh, <laughs> the total casualties the second day, they were, the total casualties were over 18,000. On both sides? sides?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. But uh, actually, two Army Corps of the North Union went out of business. The First Army Corps ceased to exist, and the Third Army Corps ceased after this battle. And of course, uh, a lot of things. Now, this to me, uh, this is the hardest fighting of the whole three days, the greatest losses, and more things could have happened here probably, with the one exception of Culp's Hill. But everybody knows about that famous Pickett's Charge. On the third day, when Lee lost his cool, he attacked on the left, he attacked on the right, and the third day, in that meeting with the General Meade, that night with all of his corps commanders, the last thing that happened when they went out of the house, when they decided what they would do, Meade said to Gibbon, who commanded the 2nd Army Corps now, he said, the attack will come on your front tomorrow, which it did, the 2nd Army Corps under Gibbon. Uh, i keep bringing this up because i like a lot of people we all we study history we like certain generals and we dislike others but i thoroughly detest pickett pickett had long curly locks worse than custard he put perfume in his hair he wrote sonnets and poetry and on the third day when they lined his troops up There were 15,000 men almost in that attacking group, but he had a little less than 5,000 Virginians that were under him. The great first families, the FFBs, the great newspaper writers in the South, always giving the Virginia troops the glory. But in that were North Carolinians and Georgians and Alabamians, making up the other almost 10,000. And when they crossed the Emmitsburg Pike, the last was ever seen of Mr. Pickett He was behind the Cordy barn and never went any farther, but the others went up to the copse of woods and the angle and Armistead was killed and the others. You know that story, but the total losses and kill were 1,300 and some, I think 1,352. And this was a frontal attack over a mile after two hours of the heaviest bombardment ever known on the North American continent these guns firing to soften up the Union, to soften up for his attack. They attacked once, they didn't break the line, and they retreated. And yet it comes so visibly to my mind, and my favorite subject, in an hour and a half at Franklin, Tennessee in 1864, Hood attacked that Union Army at in, in Franklin, and it's back at the Harpeth River, in an hour and a half, there were 6,800 losses, 13 distinct assaults, and 12 generals lost on the Confederate side. And they talk about the great picket's charge is just child's play compared to what happened in 64 at Franklin. Yeah, I asked
0: one, uh, one question. I thought you would uh, I've had this privilege, I thought they'd do these people here a favor to describe that lovely, lovely, lovely little cemetery down in Franklin, Tennessee for these people. So they could see it. It's it's really an unknown landmark. Yes, well. I um, I know you've been there. Oh, yes. And it's certainly well worthwhile to stop. Well, uh, about Uh, a
1: mile south of the town of Franklin, where the Union line was in a semicircle, a mile, center of the line, Confederates attacked this. They buried 2,000 Confederates right in front of that line. And many of them, the bodies were exhumed and others had died in other places and brought back. Where that little Confederate cemetery is and they were interred there and it's an interesting thing the old man that owns that if he's still living is a very elderly doctor and he rents this property out to a guy that feeds cattle and he's a vicious mean guy and if you attempt to go down there now he'll shoot you he's actually shot people and the other fellow like that in the Civil War field is on the Brunner farm their second bull run and he'll kill you if he sees you on the property you can't get on there but when we went down with a with a civil war battlefield group on our first battlefield tour we went back into that farm at the mcgavick house where the five confederate generals were laid out that night and we sent word into this guy we've got 60 men here and damn you if you try to shoot us we're going to tear you a thousand pieces and we went in and went in the place and the guy took a potter. He left it. He left the property.
0: Uh, when, uh, when was the last time you were there, Lloyd? Right? Two years ago. I, I was there in, uh, in uh, 1664 uh, or 1665. I'm not absolutely certain. But at that time, uh, it was in beautiful shape. Well, oh, the cemetery is right. Easy access, no problem. Oh, you can it. go in there. This right. isn't. This isn't on the McGavock Farm. This no. is next to well, it. You can see the McGavock Farm is <clears throat> the beyond them. Yes. And incidentally, it's a lovely antebellum home. It That's really it, it paints an, an astonishing picture. You can see that very very readily from the cemetery. And it's uh, for somebody that wants to take maybe uh, a two or a three day trip. It's an easy travel it's a really easy ride from here. Yes. Oh, yes.
1: And well worthwhile. It's well, but the, the, the interesting thing is that the people that know the Civil War, not not student, great students of it, but a lot of people that study it still have never heard of Franklin. They don't know anything about it. And the only reason I got interested in it is in, when I was 11 years old, my family were divorced, and I was sent to New York Military Academy, and I was a pretty young squirt. And some guy had sold my father the 12-volume photographic history of the Civil War under Trevelyan Miller, who's no relation of ours. He bought this thing for 112 dollars and didn't want it and he was mad because he bought it so he figured i'm a military school and he sent it to me and the first thing i opened was one of the volumes and it happened to be where it said about a union army marching by a confederate army you almost light their pipes on their campfires and escape and this was describing the affair at spring hill the day before franklin and there's only two or three pages of it and no pictures to satisfy me so i started reading and my history book at New York Military Academy, which I still have, says General Schofield paused at the Harpeth River in a slight skirmish with General Hood and then leisurely retired into the with Nashville, period. That's all there is about the Battle of Franklin. And there was no battle in the Civil War where one side where there were 6,800 losses and 12 generals in an hour and a half with less than 45,000 men combined and here there's 90 and 70 some thousand and that was quite a deal and that was fought an hour and a half in darkness almost they said that uh, some of the spectators here at franklin said they could hear two distinct crashes the massed artillery shot they were busting open boxes of mini balls and putting in the bag of powder and putting in all the mini balls and nails and bolts and rocks they could find and then as these mass of humanity came towards them they said you could hear the crash of that cannon and the crash of the bone it just came boom boom and they tack into this stuff I uh... that is, right. you're
2: talking yeah well I, I get
1: I go back to Franklin <laughs> but I tell you this that every time I go down the street and see these long bearded stinking smelly oh I wish I could swear <laughs> and, I, uh, uh, and the draft card burners and the guys that pulled out of the American flag.
2: Put up a Viet Cong flag. You know how I feel. Well, on behalf
0: of the round table, Mr. Miller, I'd like to thank you very much for uh, taking your time out from your business schedule and come here to talk to us. And uh, we certainly hope to uh, see you here again, maybe on the Battle of Franklin. Well, I uh,
1: I appreciate being here, and it was a pleasure to talk to you, ladies. I say it's the first time I've done this, and I hope you weren't too bored.